Hello, thanks for your company. Just before we get to this week's podcast, I want to begin by paying tribute to a pilgrim whose story captivated thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands. Phil Volker died last week. Phil's story began a few years back when he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Anyone who's been on a cancer journey knows stage 4 is the news you don't want to hear. But Phil Volker was never going to sit back and wait to die. He was going to live. And Phil had always wanted to walk the Camino de Santiago, the ancient spiritual journey of discovery in Spain, to walk under the blessing of Christ's apostle St. James, to be a pilgrim. He knew he couldn't leave his home because he would need regular chemotherapy to keep the cancer at bay. So Phil plotted a path, a walking path, throughout his property on Vashon Island outside Seattle in Washington State in the northwest of the United States. And he began to walk. He began his pilgrimage. Walking lap after lap each day, he would then plot his course across a map of Spain, his pilgrimage at home. Rather than focusing on being cured, Phil decided instead to focus on healing his spirit. His hope resonated with so many people. One of those was the Californian filmmaker Annie O'Neill. People would travel to Phil's to walk alongside him, inspired by his courage and determination. And he began documenting Phil's journey. And his doctors later gave him a window of opportunity to pack his bags and head to the actual Camino. And he took cameras to capture each footstep, each breath of joy, a spirit on the loose. The film Phil's Camino was released in 2016. It was a huge success and Phil began inspiring a whole new audience. More people travelled to Vashon Island to walk with him. And in August this year, Phil decided to stop the treatment for his cancer. He set up a kind of like a Civil War type tent in his backyard to see out his final days. He would die on the battlefield, as it were. And he was surrounded by friends and family for the last few days and weeks of his pilgrimage of life. And I was reading some tributes on the Camino Heads website. Phil himself wrote just days before he died. We should be afraid of not living here and now, but not afraid of death. Indeed. Good luck to you, Phil. You inspired a great many people with your dedication, your love, your friendship, and your endeavour. Buen Camino, Phil. Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Always listen to your conscience and don't be too mindful of the rules. The rules are there for people who maybe don't have such a a well-formed conscience. You must listen to your conscience actively for the rest of your life. That voice you just heard is this week's guest, Peter Schloss. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, a series of ancient pilgrimages across Europe. I can't help thinking... The last two years have been such a challenge. We all need a little spiritual R&R. We need to be able to take the weight off the feet of our souls. We're out of lockdown in Sydney. The state of New South Wales, where I live, is 80% vaccinated, and that means gigs. I'm booked solid into next year, almost 20 gigs between now and 2022. I took out my little Pilgrim guitar last night just to make sure I could still reach the notes. That was all right. (laughs) wasn't too bad. But the best thing about doing shows again is I get to see all the people who regularly come to see me. It's really why I do it. The people. And it's much like the Camino. No one cares what you do for a living. No one cares how old you are. You're simply there to enjoy the music. And so am I. The Camino provides for me a space of reflection. When I look back at my photos or read my journals, I'm taken back to a magical time. A magical place. So many pilgrims write as they walk. You see them sitting in town squares or they're on their bunk bed or they're on the bank of a river or they're under a canopy of trees, writing a few words and then staring up into the sky for inspiration, reflecting. And it's such a joy to try to channel your experience into words. 
Pilgrims have come from all four corners of the globe. And like I said, no one cares what you do for a living or who you might be back home. It's who you are on the Camino. And it's such a delight to finally find yourself. You've packed a small bag to wander off to a far corner of the planet to undertake a pilgrimage in the footsteps of millions of pilgrims before you. I sometimes wonder why it appeals to some and not to others. Perhaps the answer is in this week's quote from the American psychiatrist Carl Menninger. Unrest of spirit is a sign of life. Amen to that. My guest this week came onto my radar after I read a blog he'd written reflecting on his Camino back in 2013. Peter Schloss is a retired mediator and judge from the United States. He's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. And uh, just one quick thing. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Menninger was from Kansas. Oh, there you are. (laughs) From Kansas. How fantastic. Hey, before we start, I, I said a moment ago that you were retired. Actually, I prefer the wording on your website where it says, please note, After over 40 years working in the justice system, both Pete and his wife, Christine, have embarked upon sabbaticals of interminate duration. Some folks might call that retirement. (laughs) Sabbaticals of interminate duration. So let me ask you, how is your unrest of spirit going? Oh, it's it's been a real blessing. Uh, Christine and I retired in, quote, retired in 2015, but I really didn't close the door on everything I did until the first of this year. Uh, People were still calling me to conduct mediations, and most of my, virtually all of my mediations are in the family law realm, uh, child custody, divorce, division of property, uh, what some people might call the worst of the worst type of work. And for me, I really embraced that work because people would literally invite me, a stranger, into some of the most challenging and difficult parts of their lives. And in five minutes, I'm wandering around in that with them. And it's a real, a, a, a real benediction to, to be invited into that setting. Yeah. I want to talk about your Camino experience, but it was the unrest yes. of spirit that really interested me. The page where I found your blog on your website is Feeding Your Soul. <laughs> yes. Why is it important to feed your soul? Um, feeding the soul, to me, is finding a way of nourishing your spirit um, and, and finding joy in the middle of everyday mundane existence. And uh, so the Camino and, and a number of other things that I've done are feeding the soul. You know, when you're in the middle of bills and house and work, it's real easy to be overwhelmed to a point that you forget what it's like to be happy. And so things like the Camino and other things that I posted there were my way of taking my head out of water and taking a deep breath of fresh air and looking down the road and saying, there is something further down after what I'm dealing with today. Right. So where do you think this concept came from? Was it as a result of the conflict that you so often find yourself immersed in, or or was it something you've always sort of had a vision for? um, Christine and I took a long walk today, and we were talking about some of these things, and I said, when did I come up with that concept of feeding the soul and also, quote, the next thing, end quote? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And she she said, you've always kind of lived it, even though you never – you know, categorized it or put a title on it. And so we talked about that. And, and yes, um, it, there always was this idea, I, I think, just in practice before I actually contemplated it, that um, y- you, need to, you need to nourish the inner child. You need to keep that little person inside you that's full of curiosity and mischief, and you just need to keep him well-fed, and that's the soul. Oh, wow. That's great. There's a quote on your website. Everyone should have a next thing. That is not to say that one should not fully enjoy the current thing. But while the current thing engages the person, the next thing engages the imagination for feeding the soul. So that's what you're talking about, aren't you? 
feeding. That is exactly it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So then how did the Camino come into your life? Well, a friend of mine named Hugh, a fellow lawyer and mediator, one day at lunch told me about a movie called The Way. He said, Pete, this one's really up your alley. And he said, don't say no. You need to go see it. And so I told Christine that evening, and she is not a movie person. I'm kind of a movie person. And I I twisted her arm. I said, Hugh has really railed. We've got to go see this. So we go to see this movie. And at the end of the movie, and let me first of all preface this. My wife and I tried backpacking once, and it almost ended our marriage. (laughs) and I shouldn't that's, laugh, that, really. That, but that's literal. It was it was horrible. And uh, so anyway, we go to this movie, and it's, of course, the people who know about the Camino probably know about the movie The Way. And we walk out of the movie, and Christine turns to me, and with glazed eyes, she says, I'm going to go do that. And I thought she was kidding. And it came up in conversation over the, the following months. And then I started taking it seriously, and we started actually planning it. And that became the most expensive movie I've ever seen in my entire life. It's cost <laughs> me tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> and, and so we set off on the Camino, and that was in 2013. We did also walk the Portuguese route in 2018. What did you learn about yourself on the Camino? Oh, so much. I, for me, it was just like, wow, cool, a bucket list thing. I'm going to check this off. I'm going to walk across a country. And that fit well into the other things that I had done in my life, which were to seize opportunities to do the unusual. But um, I encountered physical difficulties. In fact, five days after I returned from the Camino in the States, Um, a tendonitis that I had suffered while walking uh, suddenly became a fully ruptured posterior tibial tendon on my left foot that required surgery. And um, why it waited until five days I was back in the States is one of those Camino mysteries. So I had the physical challenges. I also had an awakening of seeing my wife as an entirely different person. We've been married 44 years now, and I learned that even... Even after 38 years, you can rediscover who you are married to. And I have learned that every single year, it is still an ongoing discovery. She's an, a, a remarkable person. I only regret that I don't think I fully appreciated that in the first 38 years of our marriage. So there were, you know, the emotional side, the physical side, and then the spiritual side, um, a, a remarkable number of Camino moments, I'll say, and um, I, 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 it's hard for me to express how significant and uh, those those things were, how mysterious and um, anyway profound. Yeah, well, that's what a wonderful thing to discover after thirty something years that you and Christine really love each other. <laughs> you know, and we always loved each other. But there's so much more that you can build into the word love than just mere affection. Appreciation uh, is one of those things, you know, amazement to see her do something that I would have never imagined she would have done in her entire life. And 11 11 days on the Camino, we were actually apart because she came down with pneumonia. And, um, And so we had different experiences. Over those 11 days, we got to share those experiences, and I learned how to listen to her better than I think I had ever listened to her before. Wow, what a gift. That's the ultimate yeah. gift, surely. It is. Yeah. And how much do we learn by talking? Not much. How much do we learn by listening? Yeah. It's an under underappreciated skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting that... I'm going to skip a couple of questions and go to listening because you were a mediator and on your website you yes. describe that role as mediation is a process that helps people to communicate with one another in order to resolve the issues that are causing conflict. You must have been and must still be a very good listener. I try to be. I, I, I do. Um, it, there are times when, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. I want to throw in my two cents, but I try hard to be a good listener. 
And if you and it's not just listening, but letting the people know that you are listening. So in a mediation, a common skill or a very good skill is when one of the two people says something, you turn to the other person and say, what did you just hear her say? And that question to the other person invites a reaction and a response. And if they're correct in their reflection, the person who just spoke feels affirmed. Mm -hmm. If they're incorrect, then the person who just spoke has the opportunity to correct that person and and maybe fine tune their understanding. These are these are not skills you learn in law school, mm-hmm. uh, and they really aren't. I, I maybe they're skills I learned in life, and I don't know where they came from. But I, the mediators that I think are really gifted in the field, I think they brought those skills from life experiences and not scholastic experiences. Yeah. Did you find much opportunity to listen on the Camino? Oh, absolutely. It, it was, I mean, a day didn't go by that I didn't meet somebody that I found absolutely fascinating. And so my interactions with them were probably 90% questions on my side. And the other side, the person knows that I really am interested. And from those deep friendships, um, you know, grew there are probably 40 people from all over the world that I still am in contact with from that 2013 experience. Great, isn't it? It's so great. I love the, I love the pilgrim community all around the world because everybody does their best to maintain that spirit, that, that camaraderie, that softness and generosity, you know, that kindness. Well, like you said at the beginning in the opening that, you know, people don't care what you do yeah. in, in the world – you you suddenly are embracing the core of the person next to you, and they're embracing your core. And all of that superficial stuff kind of falls away. Yeah. It's so it's such a relief. Yes. <laughs> it is such yes, a relief. Yes, it is. Um, are you religious, Peter? I will call myself spiritual, not not religious. Um, and I and I do find a, a significant distinction there. Yeah. So how did this unrest of spirit emerge in the button-down office of an American lawyer? <laughs> no, no, seriously, I, you know, it's one of the most maligned occupations in the world. Yes. Um, and the, the, the people that malign lawyers are not the ones currently being represented by lawyers. The ones who are currently being represented by lawyers worship the fact that there is somebody at their side helping them through some of, some of the most difficult and challenging things of their life. 100%. It's, and they just don't like getting the bill at the end. <laughs> so how did this unrest of spirit bubble to the surface? Yeah, it's probably already, always been there. I, even as a child, um, uh, my, 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 my dad once said, uh, Peter, you just think too much. <laughs> And, yeah. and my and my mom would 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 just kind of wonder at the things that I would come up with uh, that I wanted to do or that I did do, and uh, so even you know in high school I would want to take trips I would want to go camping I just I just wanted to experience and so every time an opportunity presented itself to do something unusual or different I would tend to try and seize that. When, when I started my professional life as a state parole officer in Missouri, and I did that until I decided being a state parole, parole officer was not the thing I wanted to do the rest of my life, and that's when I went to law school. But I was offered positions in either St. Louis or Kansas City, and my sole choice in making Kansas City my new home was that I had never been there. <laughs> and so, you know. People would say, why Kansas City? And I said, well, because I've never been there. Um, I guess I embraced the unknown. I, I embraced the challenge of that new experience. Hmm. And then here you are still today I, embracing the spirit of those new challenges. Yes, yes. You describe the Camino as one of the richest personal experiences of your life, and you say, that's, that's saying something because your Camino was part of a grand 35,000-kilometer 
13-week backpacking journey that crossed the Atlantic by ship then covered 16 countries. That journey was just one of many you've undertaken. You've sailed on the Atlantic, you've piloted a narrowboat along the canals of the United Kingdom. You did the grand tour of North America, 49 states in the US, eight provinces in Canada and the Yukon Territory. So how did those journeys compare to the slow tourism, the step-by-step <laughs> walking across Spain? Ah. Uh... There is one. Uh, the Camino is almost almost stands alone. Um, probably the one that is right up there. Um, I in in the summer of 2010, I was uh, fortunate enough to be one of 12 bicyclists to cross the United States by bicycle, and that was 5,000 miles um, that we we rode. What's that? About 8,000 kilometers. Yeah. Um, that was that was right up there. Another spiritual and a remarkable experience. But the Camino, I went into the Camino with no expectations, and and without expectations, you can't be disappointed. Which maybe made it all the richer because every day it just exposed something so remarkable and marvelous. And and here I am, eight years later, and I found myself thinking, I, I really need to capture this for my grandchildren. Yeah. I, I need to do this in a way that years from now they might read this, and maybe it'll ignite their own passion to do something like this, the Camino even. Um, anyway, I, I still hope that maybe in the next few years one or more of my grandchildren will join me for one more Camino. I think I've got one more in my, in my feet. Oh, fantastic. That's so great. So you mentioned there the cycling for change, 5,000 uh, 5, miles, 8,000 kilometers yes. across the United States. And I read in your journal from that journey where you wrote that the charity you were writing for, Catholic Charities Across the United States of America, you wrote, feeding the hungry is also feeding the soul. Talk us through yeah. that philosophy. Well, if you're hungry you don't find the opportunity to think about much more than the fact that you are hungry. When you are fed, it brings satisfaction, contentment, and it's nourishing in a, in a physical sense. If you are helping somebody else feel satisfied and content and nourished, it comes back on you in a different way. It's not physically of, uh, you know, feeding you, but it does feed that spirit within you that you've done something really helpful. It might even change somebody's life, make the, make their life better. And that's another place where I can find some satisfaction and some, uh, call it spiritual nourishment. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's about as best as I can say it. How many people rode alongside you? There were 11 other, 11 other bicyclists that did the entire uh, trip. We had uh, some cyclists that joined us uh, for shorter segments. And uh, communities all across the United States that we rode through put on charitable events uh, where we were basically the, uh, the, the impetus for them to do this. And so they raised money as we went along, but we also raised funds for Catholic charities here in Kansas City. Amazing. And uh, to my understanding, I think in Kansas City we raised approximately half a million dollars. Wow. And I have, no, I have no idea how much was raised across country. And this, was the, this little gem was the genius of a very gifted priest who's now down in Belize, Father Matt Rule. And, uh, and I, there were 12 of us, and every day after we rode, um, Matt would say mass wherever we were. Sometimes it was in a college dorm room, sometimes in a motel room. Um, some, and, and, and he always had just a little five-minute reflection on the day that was uh, his homily, but it was germane to what we had done that day. Um, we developed deep, deep friendships from that experience. And um, again, it was kind of like a Camino experience where you're finding people that you really didn't know before, because I, I really didn't know the other riders very well. And you suddenly develop this deep core friendship, you know, a real, you, you, it's like a family. And in Cycling for Change, it was kind of interesting. There were 12 riders, there were four uh, support people. My wife was one of them. And it was almost like we were the disciples 
uh, in the upper room every afternoon. And then afterwards, we'd have some wine uh, or beer and a good dinner and a good laugh, just like the Camino. (laughs) That's great, isn't it? So there's all of these life experiences, um, not only post-work, your work life, but throughout your life. And there seems to be a common theme here, travel. Yes. Why is travel so important to you? Uh, My parents were both school teachers, and so we had the summers off. And uh, and my folks on three of those summers when I was a youth uh, would do some post-grad work, and we'd set up a little camping trailer, and I mean a little camping trailer, for the four boys and my mom and dad, and they would go off and do classes during the summer, and and we were free to explore. Uh, I think these days some people might have even called that neglectful because the explorations had some, some edge and danger to them. But I developed this passion for being someplace else and experiencing other things at a very early age, and it's just never left me. Christine and I, even at this, I'm, I'm getting ready to turn 70 in a few months, oh. and we still look to the future Uh, for what travel opportunities there might be. We're hoping that COVID allows us this next year to take our little 17-foot camping trailer to Labrador, Newfoundland for probably about 12 12 weeks, 10 to 12 weeks. And we look forward to it like kids. We're giddy about it. There there are pilgrims up there. Yeah, good friends of mine up there. And they send me photographs of Newfoundland and I just love it. I can't wait to get oh. up there. Yeah, that is a really extraordinary part of the world. Oh, gosh, you've got quite the story. And, and oh, my gosh, quite the journey there. We talked about a, a next thing uh, being very important, and, and I guess that keeps you motivated. Yes. You, you're now publishing your journals, and I want to talk about the process of that and why you're doing that. But in the course of the thought process of the Camino and perhaps getting back with one of your grandchildren in the next few years, you've got perhaps one more Camino left in your feet. How do you explain what the Camino is when people ask about it? Oh, oh my goodness. That's a deep question. Um, it, it's different, I think, for every person. Um, my wife started out on the Camino searching for not just answers, but questions to seek answers for. Uh, She was finding that she was um, locked into some malaise with regard to her own work. And for me, it was a bucket list. Uh, So we started out with very different ideas of what the Camino would be. And we ended with very different ideas of what the Camino would be um, or what it was. Um, they had, boy, I'm just trying to capture how to say this. We both embraced the experience. We walked into Santiago at the very end, and we were so suddenly and unexpectedly overcome by emotion, we just embraced each other and cried. Um, It's because you're meeting people that you would have never met before, and yet they're like your brothers and sisters. They're They're for some of the same reasons that you are, you're, you're enduring physical discomfort through the day, um, that the weather is variable and changing, you're, you're carrying your life on your back, um, but at the same time, you are embracing all of these friendships, all of these um, awakenings, these Camino moments that are totally unexplainable. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, I'm oh, just trying hard to. You, you certainly did. You certainly did. It's interesting, though, Peter, that quite often when I ask that question of my guests, they've never thought about the answer. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like they say, oh, yeah, good question. And yet yeah. it's such a significant part of our lives. Perhaps we don't think about it all the time, but I can't help thinking that it resonates all the time. But we don't think about the, the, the answer, what it means to us. How do, we, how do we explain it to people? You don't think about it. No. Yeah. And it's, it's so commonly thrown around, oh, that was a life-changing experience. Uh, this really was. Yeah. And, 
um, when you have this kind of life-changing experience, it makes the other things that you called life-changing experiences pale by comparison. Yeah. Um, it, it's right up there in my world the day I came home after the birth of my first child and thought to myself, wow, I woke up this morning and I was Peter Schloss. I go to bed this evening and I'm a father. It's, it, it really is right up there. Yeah, gosh. Oh, wow. The, the Camino blog on your website is actually you posting your journal from back in 2013. Uh, I want to get to the reason why you're doing it in a minute, but what's it been like for you reflecting on the journey and, and have there been insights that have surprised you? Yes, yes. I didn't realize how much time my wife and I spent actually apart and yet shared in a way that brought us closer together. Uh, And as I'm going through my notes and as I'm uh, pulling at my memory and and actually speaking with some folks that that we met on the Camino, especially one in in Denver, Colorado, named Chris, um, I find that uh, there are there are so many things that I had kind of forgotten or maybe just didn't even notice at the time. And I'm yeah. noticing it for the first time now. Um, so it, it has been like walking the Camino again. And I get re- I get responses, quite a few from people we met back then. Thank you for doing this with me again. Or thank you for reminding me of what my Camino is like. Or thank you for giving me some anticipation of what my Camino, Camino will be. Uh, it's, it has surprised me how well received these writings have been. I mentioned in the introduction about people sitting in town squares or on the banks of a river or in a park under a tree, staring up into the sky looking for that word that perhaps tries to or does sum up what they're trying to say on the page. Tell us about the process of it, Peter. Did you write in a handbook and take them home and type them out, or did you did you take a laptop or something? How did I have a very back then a very tiny iPod Touch, and so it's smaller than even current cell phones. And I would tap out my notes, little you know, one finger stick at a time. Oh, <laughs> and uh, and then I I. I sent those out I, I, to, to people by email. I shared some of them on Facebook. And then I, I basically archived them along with a couple thousand photographs I took. Wow. And uh, so uh, probably of the current postings that I'm making, uh, I would say maybe 10% are actually from those notes directly. And the other 90% are reflections that incorporate those notes and my current recollections of those events. Wow. What a lovely gift to be able to go back through it all and and think about where you were and who you were with and those nights that yes. you shared, as you say, a glass of wine with somebody or a meal with somebody that you have never met before, somebody from other, another corner of the globe. It's just such a blessing. Something you wrote about in your last blog post, um, it's what is a Camino? And you finished <laughs> yeah. that by saying... In life, as on the Camino, wouldn't it be a blessing if each person focused on achieving their own best journey rather than policing and critiquing the journeys of others? Yes. That's a really important point. It's your Camino. Yes. yes. Take us through that. At the, when people prepare to go to the Camino, so often they get hung up on what their backpack should be, what their shoes should be, two poles, one pole, no pole. And then they will criticize perhaps other people for their choices. And it's all about the, the, the accoutrements and not so much about the internal preparation. And in walking the Camino, it becomes quickly apparent that what backpack I have is really not very important. What shoes I have on is really not very important. Whether I have one stick or two sticks, walking poles, not very important. What's important is what's happening to me as I walk that journey. You, you have this walking meditation that is literally hundreds of miles, and it becomes a metaphor for life. At the beginning I started thinking about my childhood and my relationships with my siblings and, and, and early years in school and 
midlife, I started thinking about my relationship really with my wife and, and my own children. And as we get closer to the end, I found myself thinking about how I'm going to miss these people that I've embraced on the Camino and how it's kind of coming to an end. And that's the way life is. Um, Boy, again, I, I, Dan, I, I'm not sure I answer your questions, but I try. Oh, you certainly did. You certainly did. You mentioned when you and Christine walked into uh, Santiago, into the square. Quite often on the podcast, people say that they were relieved because it's a long walk, let's face it. But often they were, they were sad because the adventure was over. Do you remember that night sharing a meal oh. and thinking... What did you make of it that night when you and Christine were sitting opposite one another thinking it's over? Uh, it, 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 it was a joy, not because oh my, we weren't saying like, oh, my God, am I glad this is over. Mm. It was like, wow, what, a, what an, an, an amazing accomplishment. What a thing to share with somebody that you've already shared so much of your, your life with and your love. And um, we, we didn't have time, I think, to be sad other than one person told me, when you walk into Santiago, on the second day you're there, you are no longer a pilgrim. You are, you are now a tourist. And there is some truth to that. So the conversion of pilgrim to tourist, if you really are mindful of that, what, you, what I tried to do was internalize the idea of being pilgrim into my non-Camino life. And, uh, and so carry some of those lessons from the Camino forward off the Camino. Mm. Make, you know, make life a Camino. Yeah. Every day, like I said, there were these amazing Camino moments. When we walked into Santiago, we didn't see them immediately, but there was a film crew that was filming pilgrims. And Christine and I are in front of the, the cathedral. We're embracing, we're in tears. And one of the film producer teams people comes up to us and says, I'm sorry to in interrupt you, but you are such a, a lovely couple. And this is obviously such an, uh, an emotional moment for me. Do you mind if we film you? <laughs> and we said, oh, no, that's fine. And he said, I'd, I'd be happy to take your camera and take pictures of you. So there was a picture that of the two of us that this film person took a couple years later, there was a train accident, a few years later, a train accident that killed like 50 people near Santiago. And footage of us on the, in front of Santiago Cathedral was played on their newscasts in Spain. And one of our foreign exchange students caught this, sends me an email, oh my God, mom and dad, I just saw you guys in Santiago. Are you there? No. How do you explain stuff like that? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, uh, look, you, you're, you're going to bound these journals. So you've gone back through your notes from the Camino. You're rewriting them in a sense to make, to make sense of them and, 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 and compiling them on your website. And I'm going to give my listeners the, the website address because it's just they're, – they're beautiful, Peter. They're really, really lovely and they're, they are well thought, thought through. But, but really the reason you're doing it is for your grandchildren. And yes. they'll, they'll, they will be able to see something of themselves in you and your story, I'm sure. You and I had a quick chat yesterday before we, we did the interview and I said, oh, that's such a wonderful gift because we don't often know much about – our, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, and perhaps they're flicking through the journals one Saturday afternoon and they say, oh, that sounds like me. <laughs> and yes. and that, that's, that's a really lovely gift. That's a lot of the motivation, isn't it? It is. Uh, so far I have put together five volumes of things that my wife and I have experienced and my thoughts, my thoughts on many things. Uh, the total of those five volumes is easily over a thousand pages uh, with pictures. The Camino reflections are long enough. They may end up being in two volumes, maybe volumes six and seven. And we gift those to our children and our grandchildren. And one, one day about a year ago, my, my wife asked one of our granddaughters, 
So what do you think you'll ever tell your grandchildren about us? And she looked at her without skipping a beat. She says, oh, I'm just going to hand them the books. <laughs> well, you, you, I, I mean, I, I would love to be able to read the stories and thoughts of my grandfather. And that's where my motivation probably came. There were so many things. My, my grandparents have passed away. My parents have passed away. And I think back how many things I would have asked them if I'd have known that life would limit the opportunity for me to ask those questions? How many things would I have asked? What kind of answers would I have gotten? You know, I knew my grandparents as old people. I didn't know them as those vibrant young people who were passionate in their love and and actually passionate in their own travels. I'm second generation in the States. My, My father's parents were Germans from Russia, who escaped the Bolshevik Revolution, and my mom's parents were immigrants from Beirut, Lebanon. Very different life experiences on mm. both sides of my of the equation of my life. Yeah, yeah. And you end up a lawyer in Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, I did. How fantastic, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it, the land of land of hope and 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 all those dreams coming true. How fantastic. When you say uh, about the journals, um, one of the stories you were telling me on the phone yesterday, which just made me smile all day, I have to say, was that there's going to be some to and fro because they're all going to be the same age at the same time. (laughs) Yes, they are. Tell us that story. You have to tell us that story. Uh, Well, of the 10 grandchildren we have, um, eight of them were born within 30 months of each other, oldest to youngest. And um, so at a, at a grade school here in Kansas City, six of our grandchildren are at the same school. Five of them are, are in the same grade. <laughs> and, and I only have three children that produce these children, these grandchildren. So <laughs> what happened is daughter, my older daughter, uh, Renee, um, went in for her first sonogram when she was pregnant to find out if it was a boy or a girl. So the sonogram person looks at the screen and says, ma'am, I will be right back. I, I would like to have the doctor step in. And doctor steps in, looks at the screen, and turns to the sonogram gal and says, I count four. What do you have? And daughter, who's laying there, goes, for what? <laughs> and then starts crying. And she, in fact, gave birth to four naturally occurring quadruplets. Goodness. She she tells our younger daughter, who is pregnant that same year, my doctor says that what happened to me could possibly happen to other people in the family, other women in the family. And so he would suggest you would have an early sonogram. So Alexis, our youngest daughter, goes to have her early sonogram. And the sonogram gal goes, oh, miss, you're going to have twins. And Alexa says, thank God. <laughs> such a great story. Oh, such a great story. I mean, honestly, what did you feed them for Thanksgiving that year? Or what was it? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, we, we figured wow. that maybe there was a recessive gene on each side. You know, Christine and I... Again, recessive gene and bingo, our, our daughters, you know, they drop multiple eggs out of both sides of their ovaries or something like Goodness that. Me. There, there, There is one small tragedy that came of that, that the four, the, the quadruplets were born very small and very early. And one of the four uh, passed away seven weeks after she was born. Oh. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was, some, it was a challenge for our family to address. It was an opportunity for us to see what a strong woman my daughter was. And, and uh, it, 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 it brought the family close together. The three survivors are just little rock stars. Not so little, actually. They're, they're seventh graders this year. And yes. one of them is in the 90th percentile for his height and weight at his age. And the, the other one is in the 10th percentile for height and weight. They couldn't look more different in the world. Wow. What was the name of the, the girl who died? Daphne. Daphne. Well, we'll also have prayer for Daphne. Oh, thank you. Yeah, why not? Why not? What a little, thank beautiful you. little soul. 
we've had such a great conversation. I can't believe it's gone by 40 minutes already. I, I just looked at <laughs> yes. the clock. Goodness. Tell us about – I often ask my guests to tell us um, a Camino story. Why don't you tell us about the confession in Rabinal? Oh, I will. I'm going to start, though, in 1972. I had – I was raised Catholic – and I was in a group of students studying ancient history in Europe in 1972. And I was at St. Peter's Basilica, and I thought, you know, raised Catholic, you're in St. Peter's in Rome. It would be, you just, you got to go to Mass, you got to take communion, you got to go to confession. If you don't do that, it's like going to Florida and never visiting a beach. So I go into a confession, and I started out with the, you know, the usual, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very long time since my last confession. And he stops me. It's a German priest, a thick German accent, a very old priest. And he asked me, why am I there? Why am, why am, I, why am I doing this? And, and we started talking. And I, I expressed to him my challenge with the, quote, rules of religion, but not necessarily with the spirituality that religion uh, helps to foster. And so his words to me were basically, are you a good person? And I said, I think I, I try to be. And he said, do you listen to your conscience? And I said, yeah, I, I, I have a good conscience, and sometimes I, you know, I'm embarrassed by it. And uh, he said, then what you need to do is always listen to your conscience, and don't be too mindful of the rules. The rules are there for people who maybe don't have such a, a well-formed conscience. And for my penance, he said, you, you need, and we were talking for 45 minutes. And he said, for your penance, you must listen to your conscience actively for the rest of your life. Okay, so fast forward to 2013, and we are in this little chapel in Rabinal on the Camino. It's about a 700-year-old church, and there are some monks, they're German monks, and they're putting on evening vespers yeah. and doing some chanting. And one of them says, um, at the conclusion, one of our monks will remain here to visit with any pilgrim who would like to visit. Well, there were about 25 pilgrims, peregrinos there, and, and everybody left this little cave-like chapel. And I noticed that the, the, the monk remained and nobody else did. And outside of that chapel, Christine turns to me and she says, you want to go back, don't you? I said, I, I feel so bad that nobody accepted that very, very sincere offer. He says, well, I'll wait outside. You just go and do what you need to do. So I went back in, and this very old German monk motions for me to sit next to him, and there's this uncomfortable silence, and I didn't know what else to do. So I opened with, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And he raises and he stops me and goes, why are you starting with words of confession? And I said, well, I really didn't know what else to do. And he said, why are you here? And I said, well, I, you made this offer, and it just seemed like something that I really wanted to accept. And he asked me, what did I do in life? And I told him, and he stopped, and he nodded and closed his eyes, and he said, it's very difficult work and very important work. And then we talked for about 45 minutes, and at the end of it, he asked me, did I think I was a good person? And this gets, this gets very emotional for me. And it was like that German priest from, from 1972 had come back and was asking me the same questions, giving me the same advice that he believed I was a good person and all I really needed to do was listen to my conscience and not worry so much about the rules. And for my penance, he said, I should listen to my conscience and treat every person I met on the Camino and in life as if that person were Christ in disguise. That was a profound experience. Well, Peter, thank you so much for sharing that. Of all the things that you could have taken from the 1970s through to the 2020s, what a wonderful blessing. Yes. Honestly, I can tell you from my very, very fleeting encounter with you, Peter, you're still serving that penance. <laughs> well, thank you. Congratulations. 
on your Thank life's you work. Thank you very much, Dan. Of, your life's work really is listening and caring. And congratulations on your life's partnership with Christine. What a perfect companion for you to carry out that penance. And congratulations on your life of adventure. Congratulations on the blog, for the website, for, for the journal and the grandchildren. And you know what? Congratulations for the unrest of spirit. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, if there were words of wisdom to give anybody, it would be don't put off until tomorrow things that you may then find you are unable to do. Um, and maybe that's part of my desire to do these things um, when the opportunities arise, because I don't know that I'll be around or that I can do them tomorrow. And another word that I would, I would present is my belief that miracles never stop to exist. It's just that we stop noticing them. And, and every miracle comes in two parts, that it occurs, but also that it gets noticed. The Camino was an opportunity to see little miracles every day, to notice them. Huh. Wow. What a fantastic conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Peter, until we meet in person, to you and to Christine, buen camino. And buen camino to you, Dan. And thank you so much for this opportunity. It's really been a marvelous experience for me. Thank you. My guest this week was Peter Schloss, a retired mediator and judge from the United States. You can find Peter and his outstanding blog at mediationkc.com. That's mediationkc.com. It was the American psychiatrist Carl Menninger from Kansas who said, unrest of spirit is a sign of life. Amen to that. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Thanks for your company. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way, somewhere